Oh. Hello. Hi. Hi. There we go. So I see that uh, Eduardo might be coming. He tried to join an hour ago. I think he got the time conversion wrong. I don't know if he'll be back. I guess, well, hopefully. I don't know, I so I don't know exactly what uh, time zone he's in. <clears throat> I think he's in Brazil. Yeah. So That's... what time zone would that be? It would be... That's relatively close to sure. where we are. <laughs> is there only one time zone in Brazil, or is there more than one? Don't know. <laughs> Although most of the cities are on the coast, so it's probably all one time zone there. So I find I did actually finish reading this section <laughs> mm -hmm. minutes ago. Okay. I did. I read up to, but not including the this last excursus in the reading, yeah. which I think is number three, four, four. I think yeah. Mm -hmm. The dome theory of the dome. I could have read it, but I used the time instead to go back over <laughs> my notes and the many underlinings and scribbled, mm. <laughs> scribbles in the margins. I kind of resist Sloterdijk and I resist doing the reading up until the end. But when I get into it, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mentioned the, Go ahead. I guess the, the second reading that we did. I was really intrigued by it, but that was kind of my introduction to Sloterdijk was the, the introduction to Globes and then the following chapters. So I really kind of, and was engulfed by Slaughterdyke just simply because he was he was all around me at that time. It was the holidays, so I could take time out of my day to actually sit down and read. It, it does require the second time around. I find myself requiring a massive amount of time just to at least two or three hours at a time to digest something. If you stop, then you lose the the flow. Hello, John. Hello, greetings. Hi. I yeah, think well, his writing has, has a lot of egg in it. <clears throat> I, I, it has a richness to it that, that you have to digest. Yeah, uh, but it's also fluffy in the way that uh, eggs are, a quiche or something. I was reading the French version, and it was going extremely slow, so I finally ordered in the English version. And now I plowed through 300 pages in... So, <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yeah, I don't know much about the translator or the translation, but the English translator, just, I, I feel, does a great job trying to the, the French, come up with his own terms and whatnot. The French, I think uh, Ed was saying about the German that it's also a bit different. The French has a bit of a different feel to it. It's very odd. So I read through, I read through part of the same thing that I'd read in French and it felt like a completely different book. <laughs> How do you feel about all of the neologisms, all of the combin combinations of, of words that, that uh, um, you know, are very suggestive they're, to me, they're, they're kind of delightful, but there's quite much of them, isn't there? And is it the same in French? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, or maybe in French tends to, there are less of them, I think, in French, because French doesn't lend itself to that kind of writing so i'll have i'd have to go back and look at it actually <laughs> that's maybe partly why it reads so differently in french then but i like the neologisms uh, uh my my wife was a poet and and uh, she used to quote me the poets have the privilege of inventing language <laughs> uh, i've always retained that idea that uh, that uh, inventing language is something interesting that poets do. Mm. Not that I'm sure that I would call Slaughterdyke a poet, but... Uh. Well, <clears throat> I think that's what I mean, that there's a, there's a poetic exuberance uh, in, in his prose, uh, but it doesn't have, I think, the discipline of poetry, exactly. Certainly not the, the sort of concision uh, that... Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to turn that into poetry, you would take out, what, 99% of the poetry? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it probably could all fit in one uh, clever haiku. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if anybody else would join us. We thought Eduardo might. He did try an hour ago and apparently got the time zones uh, mixed up, uh, so he may not be uh, coming back tonight. Heather mentioned on the forum that she cannot make it tonight either, uh, although she expressed her regrets and um, uh, wants to come back next time. And so I think that just leaves the four of us. Um, I haven't heard back from Jamie, who was here last week, he had submitted a piece for metapsychosis, and we had some editorial discussion about it. Uh, and I haven't, uh, he, he se seemed to be going well, but I haven't heard back. So um, I, I, I would propose that we take a little bit of time to unpack what we've, what we understand uh, of the text so far and perhaps take this opportunity to review where we've been through this volume and maybe a little bit before and where we think we're going uh, with this. Uh, I have some ideas. I, I, I don't feel like I have to get anywhere in particular, and maybe that's a, something of a breakthrough I've had with respect to the text. I spent all night last night uh, reading the the second chapter in the reading, the proof of the, ontolo the, ontolo the ontological proof of the orb. 
and I thought that I would be exhausted today after that. I ended up sleeping only a few hours at you know, from 8 a.m., 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. or something like that. And I woke up feeling quite refreshed. And so I feel like I have, at this point in the in this book and in our saga of, of, of reading over the last few months, at the moment, I feel like I have some, some sense, uh, some... Uh, encompassing sense or I don't even want to say that that's kind of recapitulating Sloterdijk's language a a bit but kind of in that Parmenidean way of an access I feel that I have some access to what Sloterdijk is talking about but I'm not sure and I don't think I'll be sure until I can get some thoughts out and hear what you are you are thinking and see where our lines of thought converge and, and diverge uh and I would propose we take it slow and, and, tr- and try to include the text in our dialogue, try to dialogue with the text as well as with each other, and uh, let what needs to come forth come forth as continuously as it can and see where we, where we end up. Would that be amenable to you all? Sure. Yes. Okay. I have quick question about what about tj i was expecting ah. him to arrive for the the historical aspect because I, I had a few questions for him ah uh, yeah but we could still carry on with a sort of summary and takeaway and this would be very relevant uh, relevant to tj's area <clears throat> the whole athenian like the sort of historical context of Plato writing after the Peloponnesian War. I think that that's really interesting. I didn't, I hadn't thought that through. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, so maybe he'll respond on the forum, or uh, maybe we can Much. coax him to do a video response. <laughs> uh, I'm reluctant, reluctant to say that I do have another poem. Um, that's kind of a summary of the text for me uh i didn't really completely finish it but it has it's not really based on the images as it was the uh, previous time but um it, it sort of goes along with what you're saying but for me to actually articulate the past which i wasn't there for bubbles and to see into the future um i, I don't know if i'd be able to vocalize quite so well except through my strange poetry that I seem to form through this reading. <clears throat> but that, that doesn't necessarily need to come out now. Um, just thought I'd throw that out. Sounds to me a, a good place to start. <clears throat> Is that fine with you, uh, Jeff and John? Please. Start somewhere, so... It's a good Go for it. <laughs> what did you say? What the poet has the right to invent language? <laughs> TJ. Oh, TJ. Uh-huh. Welcome, TJ. Wonderful. Hey, TJ. We're going to do a little unpacking <clears throat> and go around and sort of unpack where we're at with the text and um, see what we have. Uh, and I, I was saying earlier, I have some I, some sense. I have. I wouldn't say a theory, but a feel 
or what's going on. Um, but uh, I, I don't, I won't know. I, I, I want to put that out and test it against what you all think as well. So uh, um, Doug was about to start with the poem. Can you hear us? And can we hear you? I can hear you. I don't know if you can hear me. Yeah. Can cool. you hear Hi, everybody. Hi. Hello, TJ. <laughs> I was just saying I'm, I'm happy that you're here. <laughs> I have a few questions for you uh, when the time comes up, but uh, hopefully you'll do more talking than uh, the last time. You seem to be more awake. <laughs> a little bit. Unfortunately, I got to <laughs> coming late and I have to check out a bit early just from some stuff that's going on. But uh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and get started. Well, uh, yeah, well, let me slip in a question then if you're going to check out earlier. I, I'm, I would be very curious about your perspective on uh, that last chapter uh, and Plato writing, coming up with this theory of the orb uh, in the aftermath of the Pel Peloponnesian Wars. So I'll just seed that. You can pick it up okay. or not later on. <laughs> All right. So I'll go ahead and give this poem ago um the first time around i i kind of was kicked out of slaughter dyke's academy by by slaughter dyke um so I'm, now i'm i'm wandering the grounds um, so i've been exiled now outside of the slotted bubble we can we can see his world a foreign land of new old ideas how to re-enter now that i've been spit out frozen wanderer frozen cold outer circles I went back in the academy. Why am, I, why am I in this maze? This labyrinth, though it is not my demise, Daedalus denies the day's demise. He devises a plan from out of this wasteland. We pray for the warmth, the heat, and heart. We pray too for a flood, pray for the rain. We want mom to wash away all this stupid shit, to flush it down the drain and bathe the baby and fresh water again. Then a voice from the heights, hark, here is your ark, here is your womb, warm water's room for all who hear me. The coming flood and the vessel, towed by two and tow, toe to toe, tet to tet, then he appears in the clouds again. Slaughter Dyke is here again. He has led us back in. Now telling us we spared ribs of discarded souls, go forth and multiply, brick by brick, bric-a-brac, wall by wall. I am the Morpho God, architect of walls and layers and layers. We continue to build for him, yet he continues to careless, to care less. He has carelessly discarded our bones, too many to count, reminding us of our imprisonment behind these walls. And this section is called A Call to Burst the Bubble. Let us create our own ark now. Let us have our own fun with the flood. Blood will be shed. We will prevail. The other bubbles, the other bubble is easy to burst if you enter in undetected. We under, undercover agents. We bring our horse house little by little, two by two, toad, toe to toe, the Trojan ready for battle. We are aware now of the outer shield, your Achilles heel, the field of play. All we wish is to have a spot in your world, Peter, a slotted spot. We have proof of your orb. We hear you spitting us out as your fat head forgets to lock the door. Now we are back as individuals banded together, 
ready to demand of your rule to include us, to remember the closeness, to remember the stories we shared. Let us back inside. We know your geometry. We know your geometry. We praise transference and refute loneliness. Please, we love you and need you. Ah, he fell for it. We come inside like an endoscope invading the womb, fetus blinded by a flash of light. It was only supposed to know sound. And he passed, he passed through, passed out. He turned out to be another lost light before life before it started. We invade, we invade, we played in vitro invasion. We thought it was a game, we gladiators, gladly entering the stage. But it was all a stage, a sign of our age, staged and frightened. We are all the fetoid child, curled up in its womb ball room, warm room, missing as we now float in darkness, float in a bubble, float off into space. Outer atmosphere, space is a frontier, but nothing is final. We lose our life, yet they remain psychocosmologically immunodeficiency. Now from above, from out of the waters, we emerge again, others still splashing, we now philosophizing, the lost demising. Daedalus denies the day's demise. We rise from the ashes. Plato's invitation at the gate was really an invitation not to be late, not to play in the rabble's rubble, but to blow bubbles, to float off into space, grounded in this place, the peregrini, the falcon heavy, saying to the rabble, don't panic. Why run frantic? Here we are again within our bubble. The space is not within the city place, the walled palace, but our atmospheric aroma remains. And that's about it. Thank you. Beautiful. So that, that kind of sums it up for me. I was really... I get, I'll throw in that I was intrigued by the juxtaposition of the the fetus. I think it was the four month fetus, and then the the image you shared, which I can't think of the name, but um, I, I was trying to figure that one out. And Gla the gladiator in the th in the amphitheater. Yeah, yeah. And on the opposite page was this image of a child in the womb. Um, I don't know if anybody did any research on that. But I, I kind of looked it up, and it was, um, I guess, originally published in Time, or maybe for PBS. But this this guy Leonard Nielsen uh, was kind of the first to go into the the womb. But it, and I don't know if I'll do it justice. But um, basically, he was photographing dead dead babies <laughs> in a certain sense. So it, it was kind of fitting with. Um, or aborted babies, I'm sorry. Um, but it was fitting with, I, I was wondering how that related with the image of the gladiator. And I, I had it earlier, but I, that intrigued me. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I feel like I don't have to look at my notes anymore. <laughs> Everything is kind of reawakened in my mind. So. so who wants to go first? Or who wants to go second? <laughs> or who wants to go last? I don't want to go next. 
Okay, I'm just going to jump right in there, and I'm I'm just speaking off the top of my head. I barely got through this. Uh, is it chapter four? Um, I got about halfway through, and I was just bored out of my mind. But the other chapter, though, I think it's chapter three, went pretty well because I got the image of the ark, and that that sort of transformed, you know, the ark and the flood. And that sort of transformed into um, a stable structure on ground. And then the village that forms. And then uh, eventually the city and the city gods and the hierarchies that uh, a city that are required to make a city work. And the tensions between the, the nomad, the nomadic um, peoples and the, the power of the cities. And the fortresses and the walls and the uh, the inner city and, and the outer city and um, and I and I felt like there were there was enough for me to hold on to and the, and that, that that chapter had a shape that um, you know it was satisfying and I I like the excursus um, actually I think those are more interesting than the chapters. I think he's good at vignettes in a way that sometimes this fourth chapter, and this is, and I've, and I've read a lot of Plato. I've recently read the Timaeus. Um, I recently read the, uh, the, the Parmenides. I did a reading with um, Graham Priest. He wrote a book called One. And he also wrote a book on classical logic and modern logic, consistent logic. And he looks at Parmenides. You know, he looks at Kant. He looks at Nagarjuna. This is definitely comparative philosophy. And he's a, he's a superb writer. I'm not a logician. I don't have a log logic background, but I got it. It was dense and difficult, but it was beautifully written. I just felt in the middle of this fourth chapter, though, that he got um, more. I just remember Gertrude in Hamlet, you know, he, she's talking to this pedantic Polonius who won't get to the point. And, and uh, he says, oh, but that's another story. And she says, more matter with less art. And that's what I felt about, that's why I feel about Schlatterdijk right now. Because, you know, the, the stock market um, lost 1,200 points, I think, on Monday. It lost over 1,000 today. Um, I live in a city which is basically a, a colony of Wall Street. <laughs> and... Uh, so this stuff is very in your face. Uh, it's, a, it's vibratory because I don't watch the news. I just catch headlines and I just notice people. You know, when I'm at the gym, I'll see, I'll see TV, you know, and I'll see, you see all the talking heads. Um, but I can feel these, uh, you know, that I'm sort of like this um, vibrating um, membrane within the big city, within, you know, uh, it's connected to all these other cities. So I'm very concerned about, uh, you know, the life of this city. Um, and I'm also just reading that quote the other night I, as we were having another discussion about, um, I think it was the World Economic Forum said by the year 2050, there will be more garbage in the sea than there will be fish. So this is, this is the kind of, these are the kind of uh, juxtapositions that I'm working with. And I really value um, public time and the time and the effort that we all put into, uh, you know, 
purifying the speech of our tribe here. And uh, I really value good scholars who work really hard at speaking to the intelligent layman in ways that, uh, you know, uplift and inspire and correct. And as I believe someone like Graham Priest does. So I also posted a, a lecture, Wunter, Wunter Hanegraaff from the Ritter Library. If you're into esoterica, he's a, he's a professor of philosophy, I think, and hermetic studies or something like that. But he gives an hour lecture on um, hermeticism, Plato and Judaism and all of these different uh, strands of thought, or Christianity, Augustine. In an hour lecture, I got more out of this guy than I did in most of this, uh, this book here. About the interplay of all of these different um, intellectual trends and how um, identities are created by mythologies and how competing mythologies you know, deconstruct people and then they have to reconstruct themselves around a, a, new, a whole new set of uh, stories and storytelling. So I, that, this is the only way I can, I, so for me, he gets a B minus here. Um, I think he could do a whole lot better than he's done. And, I'm, and that's because I'm comparing him with people who I think are really getting, getting this material and, and putting their own unique spin on it, but they're really, they're really um, meticulous at uh, following arguments and they quote large passages of the author that they're examining. And I just get a feeling that, that Slaughter and I guys is just winging it. It's just improv time. So, so it's thumbs down <laughs> or maybe not thumbs down entirely. Cause I did say the previous chapter was much more I was much more engaged in it. And uh, you know, it could have been me. Maybe I'm just having a, a couple of hours where I was a little off. Um, Anyway, but I felt like I was, it was performing a chore rather than something that I was enjoying. And if it weren't for you guys and me having to show up because I trust that you guys could give me some pointers here, I probably would not have finished. There are a lot of other things I just am not trying to be doing. Thank you, John. Uh, if I might step in, I think my comments parallel John's quite a lot. Uh, I didn't want to go first because I felt that I didn't really understand things all that well. So. Yeah, I was totally lost. <laughs> um, I Like you, I liked chapter three quite a lot. It, it, it feels like, or it reads like a little bit, like a direct extension of bubbles. So it, it's almost the same kind of progression of moving from one nested sphere to another level, moving out through the different spheres. We're no, lo we're no longer inside the person. We're now moving through levels of community, as it were. So from the person to the house, from the house to the, to the um, community or the city, and then the beginnings of something which is a move from the city to beyond the city to the nation state, which is the kind of progression that he's following. So, and, and one of the things that I appreciate from the reading of that was I found lots of parallels between what we were reading there and the other discussions we're having. So the one on the white paper dealing with democracy, 
um, because in that paper we're moving, we're looking at moving beyond the nation state to something else in terms of governance structures. And here we're looking at moving from the house to the city and the city to um, beyond the city. And so it has a kind of a sense of parallel between them that I enjoyed and I found thought provoking in terms of what we're trying to do. Uh, and I thought there's some good insights in it. It was also more poetic, I guess, more narrative in a sense in the way that it was written. <clears throat> um, I can't remember which one is in which now though. Um, so, um, the problem I had, so I had, then I got into chapter, well, I read the, the, the excursies, so I liked the one on the arenas and the, and that was interesting. We got two excursions on shit in the collection of, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I mean, not one, but two <laughs> on shit and waste and whatever. So <laughs> But I always find those subjects quite interesting. Then I tried to get into the, the orb thing, and the, and it felt like, well, as you said, John, it's a bit long-winded. You can't quite see where it's going. You're sort of trying to figure out what's going on as you move through it. And um, I felt it. Well, I started to feel at one point that it felt like he had. Well, I have this habit when I'm talking with people sometimes, and I say, well. Okay, we're going to open a parenthesis. So we open parenthesis, and then I talk for a little while, and I said, okay, and now I'm closing the parenthesis and going back to my other discussion. And it felt a little bit like he was doing that. Like the chapter three was follow up from two and one, and then all of a sudden he's opened a parenthesis to talk about something else, which is this orb thing. But given what we know about the importance of orbs and spheres for his general discussion, what I finally realized about the chapter is that everything else is actually in parentheses. And this is actually a closed parenthesis. Let's go back to the main topic and then open parentheses at the next, go on to the next chapter. Because in a sense, this chapter is a kind of a, and it's almost central in the spheres as a three, you know, as a global thing, it's almost the, the chapter that says, where did this sphere's idea come from, right? Because in a sense, he says, Aristotle put it out there and Plato to some extent. And, and Slaughterdike is repeating in some sense or taking up the arguments that these put out there. So anyway, that was a kind of a way of understanding that chapter, but I still felt it was long-winded and, as you say, a little bit boring, at least hard to stay focused on, on the discussion all the way through. Um, the, I did find, so I don't know, I can't remember which chapter it was on, but this whole discussion of the Spartan-Athens war and the fact, because I don't think I ever realized that. Now, TJ, you might have more background on this, as per Marco's question earlier, but I had never understood that Athens 
was in decline the way Sloterdijk describes it, that it was actually, I, you know, I, we tend to think of Athens as being the pinnacle of Greek culture. And so this portrait of Athens as a city in decline with a sign of, as the result of, uh, I don't know what they did, for overextension in this war or whatever. And then, and then the fact that the academy is on the outside of the city almost because it's in decline. I also thought that was a very interesting point, and I'd kind of like to know more about that. Um, I, you know, when you read Sloterdijk and he says these things, you always have a kind of, is he just spinning the breeze or is, the, is it really true what he's saying? And I always want to sort of do a bit of research to find out whether or not what he's saying is just, is, is real or, or not, you know, because I'm, I'm never quite sure whether, how much to believe it, you know, but. Uh, I went to Wikipedia on that. That, that war really <laughs> happened, apparently. <laughs> Sparking Thucydides' history of it. Crisis does wonderful things for cultural analysis. First World War is why we have Spangler and probably why we have Toynbee. Peloponnesian War is why we have Thucydides. Um, decline, political decline, cultural decline, philosophical decline. These like s slightly different things are connected, but not necessarily taking time uh, taking taking the same point in time. So Athens is a political power and an empire, especially after they steal the money back from Delos and bring it back to Athens. Um, Sparta takes care of that after the Peloponnesian War. Then the crisis is kind of, well, Athens, we were in our golden age and we were the height of Greek civilization. We still kind of attract all the wealth and all the, the cultural um, wealth of, of the region, but we're not the political. We're not so much, you know, with Sparta and the Persians kind of taking over the, the Aegean Sea and knocking them down. Of course, we're, not no, we're no longer the political center of things. And I think, uh, what is it? Just as every life crosses over from its initial abdominal cavity to a social container, so too the philosophy whose aim is to be a midwife into brighter clearings now practices relocation from the political container into a cave of pure light. And he was talking about the philosophers in the academy being moved out of the city. Now that the political container is no longer the... Um, as high as it was that the height of the civil representing the height of the civilization as it did. So now they're moving out. They're no longer looking to Athens, the great, but they're looking to this orb and this, you know, greater appreciation for the cosmos. Mm, so this argument so, that the, the Academy and Plato and that part of their power is the fact that they weren't central, they were, were peripheral. I find very interesting. It ties back to the aristocratic separation that he talks about in the introduction in chapter one, too. The philosophers are outside the city when they're discussing right. this orb. They kind of have to break ties with the, the mundane world and the world of defeat and whatever and concentrate on more, you know, higher things to kind of build their, build back their metaphysical immune system, which I guess is slaughtered. I how he would say it. I, I, I'm, um, what you're talking about Thucydides and, my 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 Greek history is a little fuzzy, but I do remember um, that that Greece was different from 
almost the, the rest of the world where there were rigid hierarchies or thugs who were running everything. Not so much, a, but yeah. <laughs> there was a juxtaposition of lots of mercantilism, a lots of uh, trade, uh, lots of sailors going off and coming back. And they were exposed to lots of different mythologies. And so the city, the city states were all in fierce competition with one another. Mm -hmm. And they were only loosely linked at the beginning. Um, then there were threats like the Persians who were definitely a big threat and that mobilized them because they had a common enemy. Um, but I think that the richness of Greek culture emerged out of tremendous tensions. Um, as uh, between the mythic mind and this new rational mind that was starting to emerge as the as more and more people um, started to register skepticism and doubt about the mythologies that they were given and what their relationship to these mythologies were and uh, the oral traditions were being um, under stressed out because of the the new written traditions that were coming in and and Plato spends lots of time Socrates and in Phaedrus has long debates about the written word. And Socrates thinks that's a really bad idea. <laughs> you know, that the oral <laughs> traditions are much richer and they train our memories. And we're able to, to hold on to things that, uh, you know, that get lost in the written word. Of course, the hyper irony, of course, is that Plato was writing about- Writing everything down. <laughs> and writing beautifully, you know, um, extremely poetically and mythically. At the same time, he was dealing with this these uh, the tensions in the city where democracy started in this uh, incredible free-for-all. Mm. So I think that's, uh, you know, that wasn't happening in Egypt. <laughs> you know, it wasn't happening in, in, in Persia. They were really top-down uh, sort of powerful. Rel relatively speaking, yes. And not that they were free of tension. They had famines right. and they had, mm -hmm. you know, catastrophes, but they didn't have, where all the, med the male citizens had a right to a vote, you know, right. that was just unheard of, you know, and this is too big a scale, too big yeah. a political scale. Yeah. So this was established in Athens. Um, and then there was a golden age, but I'm looking at, I'm looking at the art and I'm looking at, if you look at Aeschylus followed by Sophocles, followed by Euripides, Euripides, Euripides was beyond skepticism. He was, uh, he was a deep pessimist and he wrote the most glorious, he wrote about the Trojan women. These were the, mm -hmm. the, the Trojans were, Greece went to war and defeated Troy and raped and murdered, murdered the men and raped the women and took them as slaves. And, and Euripides wrote a tragedy about Hecuba, the Trojan queen and her, and her daughters and her, her relatives. It's all about the women and all of their men have been killed. And it's the most heart-wrenching play about war that's ever been written. And this was written by a Greek man. Mm -hmm. It's an all-female cast. There's only one man and he has a really rotten role play. <laughs> he kills the child, uh, the, the boy child of uh, Hector uh, has to be killed. So they, there's a climactic scene where they're dragging off the little boy to kill him. And the man is, he, the first thing he says is to the mother, Andromache is, Madam, please forgive me for what mm. I'm about to do. 
And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that Greek audience must have been, chills must have been going up and down their spine because they were looking, this is what we did to our enemy, but this enemy is not our enemy in this particular play. And that's what I'm missing in Schlotterdijk's account. I'm not getting any of that richness or that complexity. I just think he's, uh, you know. He's, he's making generalized. Up. Yeah, he's just generalizing an argument from what I got anyway. I, 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 I guess I'm third with, uh, with you and Jeffrey. I didn't, either I didn't get or didn't enjoy chapter four as much. I'm kind of dismayed that it might actually be tied centrally to the uh, rest of the argument because chapters one through three made sense. <laughs> Yeah, there was there was a progression to it. So, and and he may pick up again after in chapter five, and like I did, I like the excursus. I like those mm -hmm. short vignettes; they're very captivating. Yeah, um, but I just think this fourth chapter I felt like was a missed opportunity because I said, "Oh, he's talking about Plato here. This is a, this is my man. I love Plato." <laughs> and I just got you know what I love about Plato. He doesn't seem to he's he's just passing over and he's getting caught in these real trivial. You know, tangents that just seem to be going nowhere <clears throat> when there's so much that's there that's still vital to us today. And, you know, our whole political history comes out of these these conflicts. And, um, you know, I, I just felt that this is a missed opportunity. But once again, I'm remembering that this is before 9-11 that he wrote this book. This trilogy happened in another era, really, in the last century. Pretty much, yep. Yeah, and I can feel that this is sort of uh i don't know it just doesn't have a an edge for me it seems like I, he has a lot more leisure than we do yeah, <laughs> well, things out i i again I, I keep going back and giving him the benefit of the doubt in that he is pretty much said that this entire volume is a kind of history of what his spheres would look like history of what the big metaphysical systems would look like so i'm kind of Patiently, I mean, it's 400 pages in. I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> let's go already. But I'm kind of patiently giving him that, giving him that space to do it. Yeah, um, I want to be generous to him also because see, there's yeah. too much that's. I've gone this far with this guy. <laughs> Halfway through, we will make it. <laughs> I mean, I I did like this thing about he has about about the the outer sphere, the furthest out envelope being the one that is treated as being the most perfect the most good and the and Our the stuff. bad is in the middle you know earth and then hell on inside the earth right. and this sort of um so i i found that interesting and i found the i mean not that it's original i mean it's stuff that we know but i this idea that it's a way of stabilizing and reassuring people you know because there is a good that's further out and so you whatever you do you are encased in something that brings order and value to to what's going on and so i that argument i find interesting and i also found it interesting the the inversion that is to say uh that that itself creates a problem because one tends to think as good as being the center and yet in this case bad is the center and good is on the outside. Right. Um, so that makes an interesting inversion that I also find, you know, interesting and relevant to the current context that we are working in, because as we move beyond the nation state, 
we are also moving out of a contained environment into something that is less contained, the, this whole movement that we're part of. And so the same questions come up. And part of the um, worldwide fascination or focus on populism and anti-immigration and all of this is a kind of fear of what is coming from the regions outside the worlds that are familiar. And so, you know, it is directly relevant to the context that we are operating in now. So I do find those discussions of his pertinent and, and engage me more than the, the other ontological stuff. <laughs> I, quick question, a quick uh, uh, comment. He calls it the ontological... Proof, proof of yore, but it's really an epistemological mm. proof of yore because he all he does is cite Aristotle, Aristotle and Plato, and all he does is cite other people who've talked about it. So we're really talking about epistemology. <laughs> you know, Aristotle had an ontological proof, but Slaughter's proof is not the same as Aristotle's. So it's more anyway. So. I mean, there's a bit of an argument about whether it's um, ontology he's talking about or epistemology. In as much as I can detect a point of him, it's exactly what you say. His spheres are containers. His spheres are, and again, I think I used this phrase he did, metaphysical immune systems. I finally kind of got what that meant. It's, it's sense-making of the world. And just like you said now today, it's like, so what is coming from outside that can possibly challenge that? vision of sense-making and the city wall or the nation state or, you know, what comes next. I think that's central to, if, as I said, if I can tie it together a point as I can pick it up, that seems to be it for now, because I don't know what's coming up in the next couple of chapters. Marco, you said you have an idea where it's going. I'm, I'm dying to hear. (laughs) 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 It's, it's a, it's a bit of a soup. But I can discern a, con- a flavor through the soup. Uh, if it were an al- alphabet soup, some of the letters might be forming words. Some of the words might be stringing together into sentences. And uh, so the sentences may not form a paragraph quite yet in, in, in what I might say. But it is making some sense to me. And I think that part of what... Um, you know, I, part of what is helping me to do that is to ground uh, my interpretation in some pertinent questions. Like, what would be a question which, if answered or addressed by this text, would um, uh, lead to some some desired result? So, for example, let's imagine that the moment that we're in history, this period of globalization, of technologization, this sort of exponential curve where something is happening on a global scale uh, and also in a, on a personal scale because we're all living through it and it's, a, it's, constant, it's affecting our lives. So let's, ima- let's imagine something monumental is happening, something that, that we don't necessarily know what it is. You can call it the singularity, you can call it the end of history, whatever you want to call it, something is happening 
uh, we would need, I think, some account of how we got there and then what is on the other side or what we would want on, on the other side. We would need to ask a question such as, like, what constitutes a good life, a good situ uh, civilization, a good culture? What are the conditions for the possibility or the necessary and sufficient conditions for, hab for, for, for habiting, inhabiting uh, a reality that uh, is, um, allows us to survive and to flourish in some sense? Like that would be, I think, a, 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 that's, a, that's, a that's an important question, I, I, I think. I'm, uh, there may be better ways to phrase it, more succinct, etc. But I would want to answer that because we may have some influence on it. And so when I read Sloterdijk and I tie it to that, kind of, that imperative, then I can start to see how the story that he's telling has... Uh, is a reflection of the moment that we're in as much as it is a detached narrative uh, that, you know, kind of like the tour through mu the museum uh, entertains us or, you know, allows the author to, um, uh, you know, ex expand and to, to uh, uh, you know, elaborate upon some themes of curiosity or something like that. Like there's something more to it. And I think it comes through in this notion, TJ, that you pointed to of, of crisis. Like we're in a moment of crisis, right? Athens, in you know, the, the centuries before the birth of Christ, was also in that moment of crisis. There was a kind of flood in the sense of a flooding in of um, inva invasion uh, of uh, what would be considered foreigners from the Athenian uh, perspective. And there is a collapse of a, a social cultural system, even if it was never a closed or a, a, a an end, a, a, um, a, a complete system. But we're talking about a transition from a state in which there is some sense of safety, of containment, of order in the whole. And a situation now where there, there's um, a, a, a panic, uh, an emergency of lack of that order, safety, and coherence in the whole, such that humanity at large uh, is in a, in a, you know, in a great um, uh, tumult. Symbolized by the tearing down of the walls between Athens and Piraeus, which was their port city where they got all the grain. This hasn't happened before, but in when the Spartans won the war, that was one of the things that they demanded happen. So that feeds that sense of crisis just on a physical level. Right. And so there's a reaction to the crisis. There's right. a reaction to the breach. There's a reaction right. to... And, that, and what Slotarek does in Bubbles is ground that in the intimate spheres, in the perceptual spheres, uh, actually. Uh, it, it begins, I'm going to review... With the breath, that's the very first image that he gives us, the boy blowing the bubble. It goes to the heart, goes to the face, it goes to the womb, the placenta, the sonosphere, sound. 
And this whole time he's asking, how do we, how it, through each of these kinds of experiences, through each of these media for experience, do we feel connected, safe, uh, and whole? And part of what he's saying is that we can never rest in one perfect sphere. We can never rest in one perfect bubble because the dynamic of the cosmos, it moves us. Now, the, the force that ha- makes that happen is death. That's what he comes to in the first chapters of Globes. The, the, the sense that that amplifying other into, through which we discover ourselves, through which we feel ourselves worthy of being, uh, is we lose. And then that gets repeated. That pattern is recapitulated on the level of, this, of the, the settlement, the, the city. And then what happens with Plato is that there is a kind of abandonment or re- rejection or denial of that scale, that actual earthly city scale. And there's a leap into the cosmological, into a citizenship in, in the, the most perfect, most complete, uh, you know, most uh, like un, <laughs> I mean, so. Uh, Chasing after the thing that we can't lose. The thing we can't lose and the thing that we can't, that, but that, that we doesn't can't allow hold on to either. Outside. Right. And that, see, what's interesting, I think, is that there's this, Plato has a dual uh, lineage in a way. On the one hand, he's the philosopher, he's the hyper-conceptualist, he's the, the theoretician like par excellence, right? But on the other hand, he's also a storyteller, he's a poet. Uh, there's a piece on metapsychosis, a series of pieces by Luke Kiernan called The Mythopoetic Mind of, of Plato. He's good. Um, yes, yeah, and, and this that. explores like that it. other side of Plato. And then, John, the video that you posted, the, neo, the Oriental Platonism, yeah. is speaking of this other side. And that is the living... Uh, that, that's the living revelation, right? That's the insight. That's, that's the insight into the whole, but it gets turned into a concept. And then the concept is what uh, you know, ramifies into the, what, what ultimately becomes the modern world, the globalized world, the global economy, uh, the role that money plays, he's hinted at it a couple of times, becomes important as a circumnavigating force. Uh, and in the end of this chapter of the ontological proof, proof of the orb, I think I'm going to try. I'm going to try to succinctly explain why I think it's important. We shift the validity of that sense of solidarity, that sense of what actually ties us to one another. We shift it from the experiential and the insight and the integrated. I think this is what, this is a conclude. this is something we can draw from this. From there, it gets shifted to the idea. It gets shifted to the concept, to the form. And that, in the modern world, because, it deg- because of a, the spirit fear collapse, collapse, the death of God, becomes degraded into a, a capitalist world order where the religion is a religion of, of money. Of, 
So that's why we end the ontological proof of the orb with an, uh, the, the, the hint. And it goes into the, the next um, excursus that Plato is not just a static spherologist. He's also, a, he's also articulating a theory of the flow. So there's a circularity. And that's where, you know, that, that's kind of, I think what Slotardic is saying, the seed of this mania now that, uh, that has, is kind of result, resulting in this, criti- this crisis that we're in because we need some kind of sphere that can contain a global civilization. Uh, and we don't have it. Uh, and to say we even need it is sort of the, like the question. Like, because it, that, anytime you posit a sphere, a whole, a totality, you end up with an outside. And then the question is, what are you leaving out? And, and I, I think that that's, that's really the, to me, what's, what's, what's really worth thinking about. Like, what are we leaving out in the holes that we create, in the spheres that we inhabit? And what do we need to protect? What do we need to conserve? Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Plato, uh, and there's a moment in the symposium, which I, I find very touching, because um, it's basically, it's, you know, the story about uh, all these men, wealthy Athenians, very successful. There's a, a poet, and Socrates is there, and Alcibiades, the general, is there, who was once lovers with Socrates many years before. There's a lot of flirting going on among the men, and they're all, and they're getting a little drunk. And there's a moment, and someone says, Alcibiades, the, 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 the comic playwright, says, let's do like an improvisation let's do some speeches on love so they all agreed they go around the table and each guy would talk about love and right before they put on this impromptu performance all the slave girls who who are playing flutes they tell all the slave girls to leave they're dismissed that to me is a very poignant moment (laughs) because here are these men they're the slave owners and they're the ones, you know, who they have democracy working for them. Um, but there's that, there's that moment when they start talking about intimate stuff and they're not going to do it in front of the slave girls. And so talking about who is allowed, who's, who's included and who's excluded. And that's very fluid because I'm sure. And as, after these guys did their stories, they call the slave girls back in, say, play some more music. Let's get down, you know? So that's the kind of, human. that's so human. I understand that. I understand. I've been a servant. I've been one of the guys in the tuxedos with a tray, you know, passing around the, uh, the champagne. And, and, you know, I, I've, I've known, you know, how you behave uh, in certain kinds of settings. And we all know how to do this. But it's funny how... It, we we don't know how to do it, and but when when there's something that, that violates something, you know that oh there's a rule. I didn't know what the rule was, but I know that I'm getting a weird look that indicates that uh, someone has violated some unspoken rule. So that's what culture is, I think, and uh, I think that's why we're in such deep shit right now. 
because so many of us from different cultures and different stories and different backgrounds, um, you know, and we all, we're all sort of talking about democracy and what this could possibly mean um, when there are such vast inequities. Um, I, I actually, you know, what, what voting could mean right now when votings are so rigged. So I, I, I understand why we're working on this paper. I haven't read it yet, but I know you guys have liked it. So anyway, those are my, my concerns. And I appreciate your telling us what you enjoyed about this and what you like about it and where you hope it goes. And I'm just talking about my own um, fascination with, with uh, history and with uh, some of the beautiful things in Plato that I don't think he pays any attention to at all. And that's sort of disappointing to me. And one other story, uh, I was in the locker room and it was um, the day after Monday. That, so it's 1,200 points they lost, the biggest loss on Wall Street in history, one day loss. And I was in the locker room the next day and on TV I was watching the talking heads and this older gentleman was watching it riveted. And he was like, and I was like saying, wow, 1,200 points. And he says, yes, but the market's going to heal. It's going to heal. <laughs> and then today it lost 1,000, over 1,000 points. And I thought, what's the, what is the metaphor that this man is using? Obviously, he thinks of the, of the, of the Wall Street, uh, the stock market, as an organism that can heal, that can fall down and get hurt and cut or whatever, but that it can be healed. I don't think it can be. I think this is another instance of capitalism's, you know, creative destruction doing it again. And now they're saying this is the same thing that happened in 2008. The conditions are, are as bad now as they were then. No one wants that to happen again. Hopefully we've learned something, but I don't think we have. I'm, that's just a personal anecdote. But that makes me think, I don't think we've, we've learned anything at all. <laughs> You know? And I think we've left the Trojan heart. You know, that another thing I saw a movie, The Trojans, um, what, the, uh, it was about the Trojan War with Brad Pitt, a really cheesy movie. But it, it, it showed the, the Greeks, uh, you know, and they're trying to break through um, Troy and all these wars and battles that happen outside the city gates. But then they leave and they leave the Trojan horse behind. And the Trojans have this debate. Well, what we should, should we do this big horse? Well, maybe it's some sort of symbol of their... Uh, uh, the, the Greeks were, were failed and they've acknowledged it and they've given us this gift. So they bring it in. And of course, the, when everyone goes to sleep after the celebration, the, the soldiers come out of the horse and they, you know, open up the gates and the, they destroy the city. And my feeling is we don't need a Trojan horse. We got our devices. You walk around the city and people are in, in trance states and they're looking in their, um, they're looking at their device and they have, you know, earbuds in. And I think, I think it's like we don't have to worry about, there was that big trauma 9-11 where the, 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 the towers went down. I mean, I was there, I happened not far from where I am right now, but that was a very visceral kind of, you know, there was, a, there was at that time a sense of inside, outside and a, a symbol, a shared symbol of our uh, strength was uh, had been attacked um and that was a very visceral kind of experience but i think now it's much more subtle i think it's much more subtle i think um i think we're uh, 
once again, I think you've invited a filmmaker who made that documentary on, um, on technology and psychology and place, and how our attention spans are, are extremely um, under stress. So anyway, that's my two cents. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I want to welcome Eduardo to this talk. And uh, just since you have, you may not have heard, you didn't hear, we just, we've been talking about uh, chapters three and four from Globes. And uh, each of us has talked a little bit about our understanding of the text. And um, more than that, D Doug shared a poem. Uh, John shared his personal experience. TJ uh, has talked about the history that Sloterdijk uh, refers to uh, with Athens. Um, and Jeffrey as well has uh, shared his perspectives. So, uh, but we haven't met you yet. We've all talked before. Uh, we've been doing this for a few few months now. Uh, and you're very, you know, uh, very welcome to just introduce yourself and... Uh, Perhaps share what, what what interests you in in this text and uh, what you know what you would like uh, in this conversation. Uh, okay, thank you, uh, uh, Marco. Uh, I stop in the chapter one, and this is a little bit weird for me. It's a very different from the. Bubbles, The Spheres, Volume 1. Uh, I don't know yet what Sloterdijk uh, are building to this second book, but I think there is some clo close now. Uh, there are some things that I can tell you is about immunization. Because Sloterdijk says that we build uh, immunologic systems in this interior of spheres. So I think he is trying to develop a global, a theory of globalization. Uh, trying to get out of this micro to expand to a macro level. So we try to escape from the caves and from the womb and put this micro in big with states, with religion, culture, I think this chapter three and four, he talks a, lot, uh, a little about uh, uh, walls and limits of the world. So that is something I think today is, he's building like a global empire theory, you know? Uh, almost like the the bubbles, they inflate to globes, and these globes 
I don't know why or how they start to intercommunicate themselves, you know, almost like he's trying in shock state. And for me, this fear, uh, these fears, they cannot explode. But in the volume three, I think he's gonna do this with foams, you know. The interior, now it's floating, and I don't know more to expect from Zlotterbike now. Speaking of globalization, where uh, are you right now? Yes, I'm in Brazil, in San Luis. It's a city in northeast of Brazil. And it's raining a lot here. <laughs> And are you reading the text in Portuguese? Yes, I read uh, Spheres Bubbles in Portuguese, and now I'm reading The Globes in Spanish. All right. Uh, Jeffrey has been reading it in French. We previously had a reader in German. Uh, I think the rest of us are reading in English. Uh, various points we've been able to compare and contrast some aspects. Um, what you, what is important to you in this text? Like, what do you what do you feel like you need to learn or want to learn? I don't know. I think this second book is a little bit weird for me. You know. The volume one talks about uh, about the intimacy and the closeness about mother and child, about uh, the breast, the womb, the relations of the facial, and there is a point in chapter one. Then Slaughterdike talks about the companion of Jesus. And the companion of Jesus is their work is to globalize globalization of Jesus around the world, you know. So I think he's proposing in this second volume, Globes, a little about that. The primitive humans they start to spread uh, themselves against the globe and form some kind of community and coexistence, co-habitating and creating co-immunologic systems to form, I think, a unity globe. Or maybe uh, this piece inflates in, in globes like Rome or some uh, old civilizations like Egyptians, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to add real quick that I have appreciated your comments, Eduardo, on, on the forums. And you, you're doing a great job speaking right now. Um, it's completely understandable. And so, I know you mentioned you're translating using a translator on on the threads, but here you you obviously don't need one. You you speak very well, and 
um, gave a good summary there. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm interested in immune systems. I, mean, I think that that's something that we have to pay attention to. Uh, it's not just metaphorical. Like John, when you talk about the stock market, that's an infection. That, that, although it's not a biological organism in the way that we are, it displays the properties of an infectious kind of uh, agent. And, uh, you know, that's going to that's gonna affect your life and all of our lives, what happens there, right? So it, it seems to me like I mean, one of the, my motivations, and I, I didn't consciously tie this to the last financial crisis or to 9-11 or anything else, but I know that I'm interested in networks, uh, tech, tech, technological platforms, um, relationships, uh, ideas that advance some sense of some differentiation from the systems as they currently are playing playing out on on a global scale i don't think that that ends well uh donald trump doesn't end well right he's now he's now uh proposing north korean military style parades uh you know playing with these symbols and these you know um uh mythic uh power type games uh and we know historically what, where that leads, uh, but we don't know where it leads in a world of AI and thermonuclear weaponry and porous borders uh, and uh, you know, a, a digital communication network, a surveillance uh, type capitalism uh, and surveillance authoritarianism uh, on the state level where the complexity is just so exponentially greater uh, and the speed is also exponentially greater. Like, what is happening here? Uh, and how do we not, you know, how do we sort of protect that what needs to be carried forth? Because some, just like that boy blowing the bubble, something is carrying forth in this, these lineages uh, from the, the Oriental Platonism or from other, you know, through other, other parts of the world. There, there's something important that we learn, as, that we've learned as human beings about how to live, about what's good, about what's beautiful. Like, w w there's some learning there, right, that happens if, when we start smelling each other's, you know, poops from the latrines and dealing with, e with each other's um, neuroses and psychoses. Like, somehow that has to be filtered in a way that doesn't kill us <laughs> because we're kind of in the, on the data level, on the digital level, in the smog of, you know, of global capitalist culture and mentality and it's it has a it's like a narcotic effect and it's like a a um uh it's a, like a nerve gas it's, it's it paralyzes us it confuses us like there's disarray like and i i, I think that part of what needs to happen is some kind of level of communication, coordination, action uh, on, a, in a, on this global distributed scale. And I, I see people doing that. That's what excites me about the Democracy Earth paper, for example, is that people are thinking about how do we build structures that are more adequate to the actual scale that we're, that we're living at now. Uh, and 
you know, then we that has that that take into account. And I don't know if this is really part of that paper. I think this is part of what Sloterdijk offers is that takes into account the the thought forms and the histories that have brought us here because they're still present. The Roman gladiatorial theater was to me it was a chilling uh, ch- uh, chapter, uh, and that's why I, I read it out loud because I, I wanted to see if I could. You know, even though he's sparse on details, I wanted to see if I could really put myself into the situation of what that means to be in, you know, uh, fighting for your life, surrounded by spectators. Everybody can see you. It's like surveillance capitalism. Uh, and, you know, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And, and that is a display of first philosophy in the Roman world, in the worldview of empire. But then there's this other view that comes online that says, no, that's not what life is about. It's about love. Uh, and yet that religion of love, that worldview of love, becomes then infected with the mania of empire. And then that orb collapses and we get this sort of, you know, this uh, um, infinitization of points. Those are the those are our egos, and you know, that, those are our bubbles of living unto ourselves, not having a hole to live uh, toward or orient around. So it's interesting, um, Marco, because um, you bring up the chapter about the um, the arena. Now, when I read that, I, I didn't. I, have, I just remember it when I was listening to you talking. So when I read that chapter, what it brought to mind was, some, so this is sort of personal stuff from my background. Um, um, so my wife um, died of cancer about 16 years, 17 years ago. Uh, and her mother was ill with cancer before. And when her mother and her mother and her father had several discussions about her can her mother's cancer when her mother and and the her father was sort of you know what am i going to do you're going to die what am i going to do this you know he was sort of in denial about it and she said which i've always thought about in i always found it such an interesting thing and it's almost written directly in what slurdix wrote in that chapter um, imagine if uh, if our parents uh, died uh, 20 years earlier than they actually died. What difference would it make to our lives now? You know, I mean, this idea of when, you know, and our children... What difference will it make to their lives whether we die now or we die in 10 years? And so she had this very sort of long-term view, looking back kind of view of the whole idea of I'm going to die. Was, now, and I say that, and she was terrified at the same time. You know, she was a very interesting woman. She had this kind of focus on her own fear of death, but there's also this longer-term view of it, um, which uh, really affected me at the time. 
And then since then, of course, my wife died. Um, and, and so that also changed my perspective on this idea of, so it's this discussion that Sloterdijk has of delaying death, of having death earlier or delaying it till later. And from one's own point of view, you always want to live longer in a, in a way. And yet from the other point of view, when a person dies is not all that, not quite as important, right? So uh, it has this slightly different, somewhat different focus to it. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, I'm not quite sure what I'm saying, but uh, as a point, but, but it is a, it is a personal connection to that story mm. of Flutter Dykes that I had. I, I, I think it's if, if it be not now, it will be to come. <laughs> Readiness is all. If no man knows aught of what he leaves, what is it to leave betimes? I'm quoting Shakespeare, but it's sort of like, since we don't know where we come from or where we're going, what difference does it make when we leave? <laughs> sort of a pessimistic view, but I also think a very, something that's uh, widely shared. And I do think that was a good chapter, that, that excursus, when he goes into how the whole community, everyone had to show up and watch the slaughter. If you didn't show up, you were, you, they thought you were probably conspiring. You know, the emperor wanted to see everybody there. And you saw everybody and they were all screaming and shouting. And of course, you would start screaming and shouting in two, too. Um, but I'm thinking about immunity and immunology is full of battle metaphors. Um, it's always about an, uh, a bacteria, a microbe, or a germ, uh, or infection that's invading the system, and the function of the immune system is to fight and uh, you know beat the shit out of it. And if the immune system needs help, we'll give it, you know chemotherapy or surgery or medicine or something that's going to, to fight. Um, but there are other metaphors for the immune system. And I think uh, one of them is, is um, an old idea that the, of the sound body, sound body, sound mind, that the, 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 the body and the mind and the immune system, which is very crucial, is musical. And it's not about uh, creating identity and fighting for that maintaining that identity it's much more about making meaning and i think that's a different kind of metaphor that has different kinds of uh, effects and i don't know about Bashardite, but i get the feeling he's using met the immunological metaphor as a, as a defense um rather than as a, a way of making meaning and i'm just thinking of donna haraway the, the ecologist who lost her, her husband died of aids and she, um, she talks about the immune system and the agent of change is never outside the immune system. The virus is not the agent of change. That the immune system always lets the virus in. And that's the invitation, maybe to dance, maybe to create something new and different. Um, there may be some complexity that emerges out of that, 
and that organism might thrive even better because it's made some allies with the microbial world. Who knows? Um, but she was making that point. I thought it was fascinating to me that the um, the that the agent of change is always the, the self uh, the autopoetic organization, um, and I'm just. You know, so I'm I'm a little worried that our author is using um using the war metaphor, you know, to defend using the those images of, of uh, find your identity, focus on 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 maintaining it, and be in it and fight. Um, and I think that's sort of we're not quite there yet, but I think the successful um, the resilience that our species has demonstrated over and over and over again, I think is, has a lot to do with being able to take in things that were interpreted as foreign and to reinterpret. So I, th I think our evolution is driven by our interpretations. Mm. And uh, you know, who's your friend and who's your foe can change from day to day. Um, but I think our resilience is about being moving towards coherence um, and I think that's the big challenge right now I think that was one of the we interesting just got, we just got so many messages you know to sort out every day and I think that's our, our distraction rather than any terrible enemy out there that we have to fight that is our real enemy sorry I didn't need to interrupt no no go ahead finish no, I just thought that was one of the interesting things that Sloterdijk brought up about the Roman games, though, is that it was, it did feed that immune system because you were able, if you're in the stands, you're able to kind of, I'm a Roman and I can separate myself from all these foreign influences, these um, barbarian slaves who we've got pulled from all the provinces, these different animals that are coming in, and I've kind of you know, I'm above all that because I'm just kind of watching it and I'm kind of watching the play of life and death and it's not me. So, <laughs> you know, there's our, there's the cultural immune system on top of that. I guess the Romans were the cruelest example of, of you know, games in that sense. Um, the Aztecs too, you know, when they fed the sun, you know, taking people's hearts out, but that was, that was their immune system. But don't we see that playing out now uh, on, you know, in the media and on the social net, you know, social web, uh, I mean, this, this way that everybody can see everybody else. And there's always some ganging up on, on somebody or other. Uh, and oh, you've been reading YouTube comments too? <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it's the same kind of pattern though, right? And, uh, and it has, it's more than just what we do. It has a function, I think, is what Sloterdijk is saying. It's a way for us to make meaning together. But, it, of course, it comes at the expense of the perceived to be foreign agent. Right. And so you don't want to be that foreign. <laughs> like, you don't want to be, like, in the center of that ring. Like, you want to have a space outside of it. You want to transcend it. Uh, and yet when you make that move, like, I'm going to start my own community, I'm going to start my own religion, I'm going to form an identity, you create the conditions to, like, you know, to, to you create the walls. Uh, and so I think it is a question of how to reinterpret what we see as 
foreign or what we see as shit, uh, you know, what we see as dangerous to us. At the same time, there are some things that are really shit and some things that are really dangerous to us. I mean, like you wouldn't want to live in a cesspool. You wouldn't want to live surrounded by a lot of literal shit all the time. You would get sick. You you wouldn't. Maybe you maybe or, or you would adapt to it evolutionarily or something like that. Like over, but there's a reason why we separate it out. There's a reason why we have to process it in a certain way. And I think part of what Slurdike is saying about globalization is that we don't have a way of dealing with our shit, uh, either at the the physical ecological level or at the mental eco- neospheric level. Like we're constantly exposed to everybody else's shit all the time, and we don't have a you know sufficient filters to uh, breathe clear air. Uh, that you know that so that that's the atmospheric and the air conditioning and the air purification systems, but you know that has its own um, you know, dangers as well because you get used to purified air and then you can't handle like some uh, you know otherwise harmless microbia. Going back to what you said, Marco, and kind of tying in back to the the arena, um, but like we have recently witnessed kind of the, the group mentality of like we're kind of torn between what we see in movies and the the entertainment aspect of it and uh, i mean there's books written by pink stephen pinker about the better angels of our nature and we are maybe slowly progressing but in a certain sense we we are compartmentalizing that in a in an area but there's a fine line between being indoors and wanting to still step outdoors and witness um that entertainment in a certain sense and and the in the podcast episode i posted that was four hours long so i don't expect anybody to listen to but dan carlin i made it through it was really good i appreciate it (laughs) and the last 40 minutes it it didn't really go into what slaughter dyke talks about with death as a reminder that you're still alive you're not you're not dead 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 yet it went into the title the painfotainment like this was entertaining for these people. It's not that they were forced to be a part of the Romans. They were the Romans or they were the, and the, the group mind was there. And, um, but that's still, ha- maybe you can remember TJ, the actual occurrence that happened maybe 40 or 50 years ago after a certain trial where they dismembered a person. Um, I, I don't remember the name and I should, but uh, if you guys go back and listen to that, that, um, give you a glimpse into we are only one step away from that world from however long ago, 2000 years ago. And I think think they were guillotining people in 19, in the thirties. I think 1931 was the last one. Don't quote me. I have to look that up, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's just this, once, once we realize maybe once, uh, it, it can go either way, like you're saying, Marco. Once, like we we step away from our computers, or if there's like uh, John and TJ and Marco had a discussion at one point about 
power going out and catastrophes and um, like we're only one step away from it, it would be one or two weeks of no power and we would be in a, a world that's uh, there was a TV show called revolution that was pretty horrible, but it, it showed that basically once the power's out, we will resort to violence. And I, I've come to realize that's probably true, <laughs> but, but there are ways around that. And we're, we're living proof that we're, we're working around that way. There are better angels of our nature, but there's also that, that hidden side that uh, maybe we don't have, or we've repressed it enough, or we've surpassed the plateau of, okay, well, yeah, I understand I'm an animal with sexual drives and violent tendencies, but I'm still going to love everybody around me because I can keep that right in here. I've got my Which head we hope. We hope, but we all, the power's still running, so. <laughs> you love everybody around you because you can afford to. That's also true. <laughs> <laughs> because when you're, there's no food around and you're hungry, mm -hmm. And the lights are out. It's amazing what people, the horrible things that people will do. So. It's probably a subject for a different uh, conversation, but he, yeah. um, your, your podcast, uh, Doug's the podcast, he kept asking the question, what's the default human setting? And I thought that was incredible. Great question. <laughs> yeah, know, he, he's kind of like the, he's the slaughter dyke for, <laughs> for maybe the, our mind or certain people's well, no, mind that can't yeah he's deeper though he's very incisive i don't know who, who's the name who's the what's the name of the uh dan carlin dan, Car dan carlin yeah yeah it's hardcore history to, is the podcast. Have you listened to that podcast before tj no no i think you would love it i think oh hard oh hardcore history i've heard yeah. of it i just haven't you know gotten to all of them yet but yeah he's he's very he's very insightful um, he, he kind of takes a point and, and keeps on the explanation, which I guess is, is still kind of frustrating about Slaughter Dyke when you read, uh, he's not like that at all. Carolyn just, you know, follows it. But, um, that was a great question. What, what is the default human setting and with the power on and with the food, you know, supplies, you know, pretty regular, that's, it, it, are they different? And then if you look at situations where we don't have those going for us, you know, what happens? And then you wonder, how loving are we? And how inclusive can we be? Have we learned anything? Well, I mean, that, that isn't, that's the point of, the, the, of, of a religion, though, isn't it? Like the early Christian experience, you know, being in the middle of that, that arena, like there was a teaching there that mm -hmm. had to do with how you comport yourself in a situation where you know, where, that's where you are the, you're, you're the one who's going to be eaten by the lion. You're the one who has to face the gladiator. Uh, there's an ethic that's cultivated there. Uh, and I think part of what Sloterdijk is saying too, is that that ethic has this, it's, it has ideas. Like it's, it's not just an isolated thing. Mm -hmm. So we could, we could, that's why we could make, we could tell the intellectual story or the genealogy going from, let's say, the, the you know the the wisdom the wisdom sources whether Hermes Trismegistus or Moses or Zarathustra through you know these transmitters like like Plato whether you know that that's a, a particular story that arose in the Renaissance mind around where this comes from what the origin is but nonetheless uh, it's a real thing right because there are people who in those situations don't 
revert to barbarity. And what are the conditions for the possibility of that? Uh, that is to say, of a different changing that default, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That it's a good question. It's a great question, and, it, and it's also you have to determine um, people in that situation don't revert to barbarity. But if you put swords in their hands, what would be the temptation to revert to barbarity? So it, it's a complicated. You know, it's complicated. I know where you're going uh, with it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but th- yeah there's a, definitely a game theory uh, right. involved, right? And I, I'm not saying that Sloterdijk is like advocating for some kind of sainthood, exactly. I mean, uh, no. <laughs> no I, he seems much more of an aesthete, and he, he, he wants to preserve, you know, the, the best of, of what culture has produced, and that... that I appreciate that. Uh, even if he's a museum guide and reminding us why these things are important, uh, I think that that serves to preserve something that's worth preserving, something that right. should not succumb to barbarity, should not succumb to the you know, colonization of our consciousness by uh, artificial intelligence or whatever. Like, there's something that's worth, that's worth uh, preserving. Uh, and, and it's not a thing. It's, a, it's that... Well, <laughs> it's sort of the mystery, right? It's sort of the mystery or it's the breath or it's the, the ether, whatever that principle is. And what I appreciate about Sloterdijk as well is that he, he, contra- uh, he con- compares and contrasts different fundamental metaphors uh, for thinking about the whole and thinking about the, the, the all. Um, contrast the Greek and the Christian uh, approaches, the Greek, you know, ending in in a in a in a, in a big hole in a cosmos and th- this christian bringing it to the uh the, in- the incarnate individual who transcends their physical body right. and then we end up in augustine and not just the spiritual body but then the city of god the, city of the god, idea yeah. of the, the cosmopolis that is not um of uh this you know the earthly uh settlements and the earthly systems and you know that if that turns like there's a problem that turns into a political structure but at the same time i mean do do we not need at least like metaphorically or narratively like that utopia on the map i think we build it just by being human i think we are that they are hopes focusing on something our hopes, even in this age, focus on a world that's not so antagonistic in its economic and political systems. You know, so I guess it's kind of a dream on the horizon, which put yeah, the sphere, the spherical horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to run. Can I leave everybody with the quotations that really struck me? Please. Yeah. So... Chapter two, this is off of, this is from page 188. Individualism is a form of thought that reserves the attribute real for individuals and acknowledges communities only as secondary, less real and terminable agglomerations of autonomous parts. That is as societies in the contract theoretical sense, social, social contract. Such an approach prevents any understanding of the irreducible density of human intimate relationships. It blocks out the field of strong relationships from the anthropological perception. Connected to one from later on in the chapter, about 10 pages later, 198. 
One can define the age of classical metaphysics as that in which the motif of self-harboring in a favorable totality far outweighed that of self-liberation. Modernity is characterized by the precedence of the liberating tendency over the cave need and through the pull to transcend horizons. So antiquity and modernity differ in their radically opposing insulation procedures, the radically opposing immunization. And then finally, the last from Excursus 4, one of the last things I read off page 438. The roots of postmodernity were no longer cosmological dogmas, but rather working hypotheses for provisional communities. And there's your foams, I think. <laughs> Everything's provisional now. <laughs> Thank you, TJ. Thanks. Yep. All right. Sorry, I got to run, guys. But thanks. Good night. <laughs> Good night. See you next time. Yep. Well, how are we all doing? Doing good. Um, I was just thinking about um, Tr Trismegistus, right? Hermes Trismegistus, yeah. Yeah, and his, um, in the Renaissance, how there was Christianity and the church, and there was this uh, Trismegistus, and uh, I think it was Moses, but they were in Zoroaster, and they were really drawn to the oldest text by the oldest prophet or scholar was the most important. And it was discovered, and they thought Hermes was the most ancient. That's why he had so much clout, but he lost it. When some translator, some scholar says that that's, uh, this text did not come from an ancient time. It came from the Roman period and like the second century AD. Mm. And so he lost his... Uh, so those who are advocating bringing in the hermetic philosophy, which is very humanistic, um, they, they sort of lost out or didn't come forward the way many of those who sponsored that movement wanted it to. Mm. So I thought that was very, really fascinating. I did not know um, the positive intention behind a lot of those people was that, you know, Christianity was created by, it's a, it's a religion for slaves, basically. And there's a, there's a spiritual body at the expense of the physical body. You mm. to reject the physical body. Mm. So it's not like you're transcending and including. You're you, you're transcending and rejecting. And there were some there were some humanists in the Renaissance who really resisted that. And that's why they they're so drawn to bringing in the, in the Hermetic philosophy. And I think it's so fascinating that the end of um, that era, the Roman era. The, the Neoplatonists and Plotinus and Porphyry and all of these really weird guys, they were reading their Plato and they were bringing it back and they were, they were into magic. Mm. And I think that's our age too. I mean, we're in another, all the a juxtaposition of many different kinds of uh, intellectual currents uh, that are grabbing our attention, but um, magic is on the comeback. Mm. I have a lot of, uh, I have some friends who are in the magic underground, who are, who are pretty young, you know, in their 20s. And um, they're telling me it's very popular. So it's not just something, you know, you see on Netflix, you know, all these, but that, that it's really um, people who are really studying it and practicing. And uh, I know there was an outbreak of, of interest in the occult um, back in the 80s, like the New Age, but it was very short-lived and it sort of 
went out of fashion as quickly as it went into fashion. But um, there may be there may be these periods that we're in where the, those those uh, the healthy magical can come forward, and the healthy you know the healthy archaic, the healthy magical, the healthy mythic can support our resilience as we make this transition that many of us feel like we're making. And we're, we don't have any very good maps. Um, and we're all sort of doing the best that we can. But I'm, I'm, but I'm fascinated by that interplay. That's why I like that lecture so much. And I think this is what Schlotterdijk at his best is trying to do that, I think. He's looking at all these different, what, what resonates with him. And this, I, I think he must have felt that, you know, in the, in the 90s when he was writing this, globalization was on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. So um, I think he was like trying to pull out from the history of philosophy and, and anthropology and culture what was resonating with him. So I think when he's when he's good, he's very good. But I think in this chapter, chapter four, I think he's really bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't think he I don't think he he's uh, up to speed. So yeah. I, I, I mentioned <clears throat> I mentioned today, and it was based off of a post that Eduardo had uh, mentioning the archaeologist side of Slaughterdyke. Uh, but when I, my very first initial impression, the very first note I wrote after, I think, reading Globe's introduction, or maybe I started with the Bubbles introduction, I can't remember, just to kind of catch up. But the first image I had of him was as an archaeologist slash um, alchemist magician was, was kind of my term for him. And yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's for, that kind of sums up maybe maybe the stages you're talking about. He yeah, and there's alchemy, he, there's there's magic, and he, he's not, maybe yeah. searching for that healthy version, and maybe also exploring the the unhealthy versions, or uh, just just taking it all. Taking uh, Tillich has a phrase of taking being and non-being into being. So Slaughterdyke is kind of attempting to just take everything of the cosmos within whether it's good or not and whether we like it or not, or whether we like his exaggerated interpretations or not. And he's saying, well, this is exactly what we, this is (laughs) all around us and um, come with me. So I'm still preoccupied by the links between Sloterdijk and our world. So one of the things I was thinking about earlier is um, this discussion of walls in in chapter three, I think it is. And one of the things about, so, you know, we have the whole thing of Trump's wall, right? So, uh, but but what we know about Trump's wall and, and the walls like that is they don't work. They don't work the way they did back then, right? Um, they don't hold anything out. In fact, they're, Walls don't really have any kind of, a lot of impact in today's world. And, but then I was thinking about 9-11 and the World Trade Center, right? So, I mean, the, the thing about 9-11 is not only was it uh, an attack on the towers as a physical building, but it was also an attack on the World Trade Center. Right. And the financial... Um, pinnacle, if you like, the, the the it was an attack on the financial empire, and not just on the 
built empire. And so in a way, I'm sort of thinking that the tower may be a kind of 21st equivalent for our society in the way that the wall served in the kind of context that Stoddardike is talking about. So that is a, maybe an image to... Anyway, I, I think it's kind of an interesting... Uh, and, and of course, the crisis, so the 2008 crisis, and then whether or not we don't, we don't know whether what's going on is, an, is a crisis as large as 2008, but there are suggestions that it might be. Um, and so these crises are also uh, falling apart of the one of, of the ba- one of the bastions of twenty of our modern culture society, which is not kings but money, right? And the financial system that is in place to maintain money. And so when that starts to fall apart, it's the equivalent of losing the powers that be in a sense so uh, i had another comment that i wanted to make finishing up too um i noticed that um Slaughterdyke, uh, and again this is a thing where Slaughterdyke talks about so this is in relation to our discussion about uh, the irreducible mind that we had the other day so in that discussion and in the way that we tend to think about soul in the modern context, we think of the soul as something that is in the body. But the way Slaughterdyke talks about it in this chapter is the soul embraces the body. So the body is actually embedded in a larger entity, which is the soul. And so I found that kind of a... Uh, a tangential or segue in a way between our different discussions that it was it is probably worth thinking about a bit. Yes. Good. You know, Je- Jeffrey, just on that point of the wall, there's also the dome, uh, and that was the the last excursus. Uh, it, and that reminded me of of the uh, sort of the anti ballistic, the anti nuclear kind of umbrellas that that we're building. Uh, Reagan had his Star Wars, and the idea is always now, you know, to protect from any kind of incursion that would come, you know, not laterally, uh, but from above. Uh, and, you know, there's there's some that that you know that wasn't going to work either. <laughs> that, the, but in the in the psyche, you know, of of the, of the culture, it preserves a, an order. It preserves this, the a political order because we expect our government to protect us. We, in quotes, um, and when it can't, that's when you know when, when either militarily or financially, that's when hell breaks loose. That's when the latrines explode. Well, it seems like we're wrapping up, but I, I'd love to hear, uh, Eduardo, if you have any reflections uh, before we finish. Yes. Uh, the John Davis talked early about immunization. And I think he's correct because immunization is two means. One is biological 
and the other is military. It's almost like infiltrate, uh, neutralize, and go back. But if you take the biological version, I think that the sphere is not building about the walls or limits of my territory. I think that Sloterdijk is talking about uh, membranes can, membranes, no, it's, yes, membrane that can uh, come bigger and, and gets, uh, for example, if you think about the placent and the fetus, this is a perfect immunological system because you have an element that wasn't there earlier and this element is going to grow, grow, grow and this membrane here, here companion this growth, you know, the placenta is not a, a wall because in bubbles, Sloterdijk talks about uh, people that has autism. And the autism is a wall of fetus. It's like uh, the music in this resonance uh, don't came, uh, don't play well. And the autists develop this deficiency uh, of communications and others problems. And I think this idea of immunization is also about uh, immigration because you have a strange element that came in this new environment. They have their own rules, their own religion, their own ethics, politics, and this immigrant is almost like uh, a strange organism, but this idea of immunization is not eliminate the strange element because the in biology biology view we talk about uh, anticorps, you know. So when the strange element comes into into a body or into a cell, we might think that we have to eliminate this element, but I think Sloterdijk is thinking about incorporate this element, like uh, absorbing and uh, maybe put him in, a, in one place, I don't know, or let's say, uh, enjoy this pathologic element in the interior of the sphere. Uh, if you think about virus and, and vaccines, the immunization is almost like that. You incorporate the virus and the virus can do like some bad things uh, earlier, but our immunologic system is almost like conviving, uh, cohabitate with him. Uh, 
is also like we domesticate the virus in ourselves. But, but from a nation state problem, like right now in Europe, it, 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 it's, not from, it's not as so simple, I think, as um, integrating uh, immigrants because there are so many. And in order to integrate, in order to, in a healthy way, bring in a foreign presence and provide that presence with what it needs to, to maintain its own in, individual in integrity, or group, small group integrity, but also connect with the rest of the society, that takes a real commitment on, on the part of that society. They have to want to do it. They have to fund it. The people have to do it. There has to be the will. They have to give yeah. up things too. There are people in this country who are not taken care of. Yes. They'll, that, they're the ones who are going to lose a great deal. That's why we're seeing this autoimmune response, which has made Trump president. Mm -hmm. Because this, uh, neo, no, this neoliberal fantasy just didn't want to hear it. So that's my two cents. I think that's uh, unfortunate. But uh, this may be part of our learning curve. I also think that... Um We've known this is coming for a long time. I mean, the immigration problem we see as a new thing, but people have been saying, uh, you know, given the poverty in Africa and the difficulties in other parts of the world, we've known for a long time that the developed world, the so-called developed world, is going to be invaded at some point by those trying to get out of poor or difficult climates. and. Right. You know, the wars and the, the refugee crisis and all the rest of it, it's hardly news in a way, you know. And uh, so, I mean, all the walls have gone up, but um, it's, uh, you know, it's not a simple, it, 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 I mean, I, it's I agree. It's not a solution. Not. It's not a solution, I think, right? Because we're not addressing the, the, the global issue. What are the root causes, let's say? of those migrations? Well, they're very complex. Uh, some of it has to do with imperialism. Some of it has to do with moder modernization. Some of it goes back to ancient tribal uh, conflicts. Uh, and then they all converge in these powder kegs. That and water. And, and water. They're running out of water in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, and the climatological stress. Yeah, it's huge. And, I mean... I think that point, I mean, the point is that just putting up walls doesn't protect you from the, the, the bigger, uh, bigger phenomenon. Yeah, so we, we find out more and more each year, going back to the kind of introduction of the virus, that our flu vaccines, there's, there's, they're not going to be able to protect us. We're getting new strains of flu. We're getting new invasions or introductions. We, and no matter how much we domesticate, the problem is all around us. And if we focus on just ourselves, then we're neglecting the other strains that are out there. And so the global aspect really enters into play. Right. And, and that's true of my antibiotics as well. You know, it, tuberculosis was stopped by antibiotics, but now there's strains of 
tuberculosis that no antibiotics can stop. So it's, it's coming back. And so if that war metaphor dominates and we try to wipe out all the pathogens, the, microbes, the microbial world is going to win because we can't, we can't win that. So we have to, I think, find different ways of improving our immunity and becoming more sophisticated immunologically than trying to uh, shoot the invader or, or build walls. Those are simple, simple strategies uh, that work for simple problems. But I think that's our, that's the, that's our big problem. We, we try to oversimplify what's actually very complex and it gets, and we drive it into chaos. And I just want to, one quote from the US military, when you're in a chaotic situation, and I don't think we are yet, but I think we will be in chaos if we continue to try to oversimplify the complex. Um, but there, there's something that the US military said, when you're in a chaos situation, capture the high ground, stay in touch and keep moving. Just in case you're in a chaotic situation, <laughs> you may want to draw, use those principles. Okay. This will probably be the last thing I want to say, but I want to go back to Eduardo's mentioning of autism. I, did, I didn't read that in the, the bubbles, but my favorite author, David Mitchell, translated a short book for an autistic um, Japanese uh, child. And I... I, I I read the book and what I took away from it is basically that they have, they're not, there's no deficiency going on. It's just a matter of the time or timelessness or the, the way that the outsiders, we are even the group, the non-autistic individual just is unable to listen to what's being said. But as new forms of communication we have translators, we have, um, so the autistic child can be heard and their voice um, is musical. It's a different, different way to see it and the translation can be seen, taken into the DNA translation. Like there's, there's ways to translate. There's many different translations going on all around us and that introduces the technological, that introduces a way out of this mess in a certain sense. And maybe that's, that's what I want to leave it on is we tend to always want to go on the decline and then we'll leave and say, okay, well, well, everything's fine. But um, there are, yeah, there's, there's everything going on at once and there's no pure answer. And who knows where slaughtered eggs going to take that. Yeah. The, the artists call us neurotypic. And uh, they yes. are neuroatypics. Yes. So it's it's a question of difference rather than def deficit. I, I think neuroatypicality is not that. I think it's much more common than we, we, we like to pretend. Yeah. Everyone has a different brain. And I think it's, we have different DNA. And so it's, I think each of us is wildly improbable <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, I think adequate translation, you mentioned translation, and I think that's so important is that we have adequate translation, which if we have enough adequate translations, transformation might happen. But you can't have transformation without uh, those adequate translations and translators. 
So um, I think that is important. Maybe something that we're trying to do here. Let's take this author with that vocabulary, that point of view, and try to translate it in such a way that it can be part, uh, you know, integrated by this group. And then we'll take another author and contrast and compare. And maybe our, uh, we get more resilient as we do that. That's my hope. <clears throat> okay. Thank you. That was Thank great. You, John. A lot about things about what I wasn't sure I understood. So, I think I'll read the reread this chapter. Maybe I'll be more generous <laughs> <laughs> after this All conversation. All right. Any last words? You know, before we go, I, if I can just take one more moment because sure. first time meeting Eduardo. So, what are you doing in Brazil? What's what what's going on there? Said hands sent. Oh, you're muted. Hi. <laughs> I don't hear the cash day question. I uh, just uh, one. I'm just curious before we left because you know we. I've met John. We've well. Everyone here has talked. You t shared your thoughts about Sloterdijk. We know you're in San Jose, Brazil. Um, I just wanted to get a little more uh, information. Like <laughs> what? What? <laughs> What do you do? What's your life? What's your life there? Uh, talk about my formation. Your situation. Okay. Uh, my graduation is slow, and I'm a lawyer too, and I have uh, post graduation and. Let's translate it here. If you say it in Spanish, I could I could translate it. It's labor law, and I became a lawyer, but almost a three years, and now I stop because it's really tough. <laughs> The job is tough or the, the economy or something? The job. Everything in Brazil is tough. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have a lawyer on the team, though. I mean, I think there's a lot we could learn from somebody with that background. So, Thank you. And please share on the, on the, the forum. I like your posts. I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to post something tomorrow, I think. Good. We need all the help we can get. <laughs> okay. I, I have to go. All right. Good night. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye. Good night, all. Good night. I also have to go. I have a thousand words to, to write before midnight. So, my <laughs> daily deadline. So, <laughs> what, are you, what are you writing on? Uh, working on the the next volume of my uh, opus. So. Oh, this is your your daily your yeah. daily practice. Oh, excellent. Oh, well, good. Godspeed. Yeah. <laughs> good night, folks. Good night. Say good night.
Thank you.